And so the Jews felt like they were in a good place. Um, and if you remember leading up to this, they had had victories over the Romans. So they had driven all the Romans out of Jerusalem. They had defeated one of the uh, most highly decorated and um, renowned Roman legions. And those victories by the Jewish rebels gave them great confidence and they believed that God was going to overthrow the Romans and give, restore the kingdom back to Israel. <clears throat> you had two main guys who were leading two factions of Jews. Uh, they were one inside and then one was outside and, and they both ended up in Jerusalem and I think where we left off was um, these two factions were fighting among one another. And Titus finds out and he decides that he's just going to basically let the Jews duke it out and weaken each other. And at some point he tries to uh, take the city and thinking that the Jews were divided enough, but the Jews came together and uh, sorely defeated the Romans. And then he decided that he would just wait the Romans out. Now, remember, at this time, Vespian has gone back to Rome to become emperor. And he puts his son Titus in charge of the military campaign. So it is Titus who is actually overseeing the siege of Jerusalem and overseeing this military campaign. Um, let me read to you now. So they're, they're, the siege is going on. The Romans are surrounding Jerusalem. The Jews are inside. They're still fighting each other inside. They're still believing that God's going to give them victory. Let's look at Luke chapter 21, the words of Jesus. I know we read this um, in weeks previous. But I want to look at this again because Jesus is very specific in what Jesus um, and what he tells the Jews, how he warns his disciples. So this is prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke chapter 21, <clears throat> he looked up and saw, uh, well, this is where he's sitting in the temple there, and he sees the rich putting in their money, and he points out the, the widow who gives more than anyone else, not in in dollar value or in, in monetary value, but in her sacrificial giving. And then uh, in verse 7, it says, So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? When he says, Not one stone which uh, shall be left upon another. Verse 6, These things which you see, the days will come upon, will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down, Luke 21, 6, verse 7. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So we, what, what is he talking about? When will it be that not one stone shall be left upon another? What are the signs that will be when these things are about to take place? Verse 8, 
And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. Now this is exactly what was happening at, during this time of the first Jewish revolt. The Jews said, now is the time. This is our time to overthrow the Romans. This is the time for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. You had these Jewish leaders who were, were professing to be the one who could lead Israel to freedom over the Romans, who basically would be the Messiah that the Jews had been looking for. Verse 9 but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. So remember, as we've gone through this timeline, there were years leading up to the ultimate um, beginning of the revolt where there was real war between the Jews and the Romans. So this had been taking place really even the decade prior to the siege. Things, the rumblings were there. There were all kinds of things happening. Remember, we talked about the signs in the heavens. You had the comets. There were two different comets. There were uh, the, the, the sword that supposedly hung in the sky, uh, the sound of armies marching, uh, going across the land, all of these things that historians reported were precursors, warning signs, signs in the heavens, if you will, that spoke of this time that was coming. But Jesus said, you'll see these things, you'll, you'll hear of these things, but these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And that was happening. That was happening even prior to the, during, at the beginning of the revolt and prior when Nero committed suicide, Rome was in civil war. So the empire of Rome was divided. There was war within the empire, nations who had been under Rome's authority were now rising up against Rome, and there was this attempt to divide and conquer the Roman Empire. The Jews saw all this, they knew of all of this, and they felt like this was their time. This was when God was going to destroy the empire and then restore the kingdom. Jesus warned them that all of these things were going to happen. But he says, don't be fooled. The end is not near. These things must take place. These are just things that you need to pay attention to so that you're not caught. And, and actually, that's what history tells us happened. The, the Christians left Jerusalem because they understood the warning signs that Jesus was telling them about. Verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Those comets, those voices, those angelic manifestations. Verse 12, earthquakes were taking place all across Asia. Uh, much of Asia was earthquake prone. 
verse 12, but before all these things, they will lay your, their hands on you and persecute you. Now, who will lay your hand, their hands on you and persecute you? Who is Jesus talking about here? Well, who's going to lay hands on the disciples and persecute the disciples? The Jews. The Romans did too, but the Roman persecution really didn't begin uh, until um, the latter part of Nero's reign. Uh, long before the Romans were persecuting the Christians, it was the Jews. So when Jesus is speaking this to his disciples prior to his crucifixion, literally here in Luke 21, days before he's arrested to be crucified, we're still 30 years before Roman persecution begins. But he's telling his disciples, they're going to take you, and look what, look what he says, they'll lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering, up to the, delivering you up to where? The synagogues. In the prison. So Jesus, when he says delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, we know that Jesus is talking about Jewish persecution of the church. So if you think about it, the, the nation of Israel did not just reject their Messiah once when they had him crucified, they rejected him throughout the course of their persecution of the church. Remember what the Lord said to Paul when he strikes him on the road to Damascus and knocks him off his donkey and blinds him. And he says, Paul says to him, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Jesus warns his disciples that the Jews are going to deliver them up, persecute them. You'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And we see the record of that in the book of Acts when Paul is brought before Agrippa. He's brought before Festus. He's ultimately brought before Nero. And Nero actually released Paul, um, the first imprisonment. Verse 13, but it will turn out for you as an occasion of testimony. That's exactly what Paul did. He testified uh, as recorded in the book of Acts. But not just Paul, but all of those disciples that were taken up and brought before synagogues. It was an opportunity for testimony. Verse 14, therefore settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. Boy, that's kind of hard, isn't it? Think about Danny Mangold sitting in a prison in Ghana. And he reads this and he says, don't, Jesus, he reads the words of Jesus and Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't try to figure out what you're going to say beforehand. I'll give you the words you need to have. I don't know, what do y'all what do y'all think about that? Huh? Might be the safest way, but I ain't going to lie. It'd be pretty difficult to be sitting in prison and not be thinking about what you're going to say to your accusers. And maybe it depends on the circumstance, but Jesus is clear here. 
basically saying it's going to happen. And there's really no way for you to prepare yourself because you don't know. You, this is not going to be a fair trial. They're going to haul you up and they're not going to give you a fair trial. They're, they're trying to find an excuse to do to you what they did to me. So don't worry about what you're going to say. When the opportunity comes, open your mouth and, and the spirit will, will give you words. Yes. Yes. That's the only way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Jesus is basically informing us of here. If you understand that God has orchestrated your time before those magistrates, then God's going to orchestrate what's going to come out of your mouth as a witness to him. Verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Verse 16 reminds us of the words of Jesus when he said, Don't, do not think that I came to bring peace but I came bringing a sword to divide families, fathers from sons, mothers from daughters. What is it that's going to divide these families? What is dividing them here? Well, Jesus, the gospel is. So these are, he's talking to his Jewish disciples and he's saying, listen, not everybody is going to embrace me as their Messiah. So you're going to be betrayed by the very people that love you and the, the people that you love because though you may believe in me and trust in me, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers do not and they will betray you to the authorities and have you arrested because of me, because of the gospel, because you trust in me. So he warns them ahead of time what's, what's going to happen here. Verse 17, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is, what happened. this is what's happening to Danny Mangold in Ghana right now. That witch was so angry about the gospel that they preached that she fabricated false charges to, to get back at them. And it's not that she hates Danny Mangold, it's that she hates Jesus. But this is an opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed in front of magistrates, in front of rulers. And only God knows what ultimately will come of this. So what's happening to the Mangolds in Ghana right now is exactly what happened to the disciples of Jesus. In the very time that Jesus is speaking this, and, and up until now, all over the world, you will be, verse 17, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. What does he mean, but not a hair of your head shall be lost? What should we take from that? That they're going to be found innocent all the time? And every time they're going to be let loose? No, it, it reminds us of what you 
Yeah, that would be over here in Matthew chapter 10. Let's look at that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. <clears throat> now, this is, this is uh, in the midst of his earthly ministry when he calls his disciples together and he sends them out and gives them power over unclean spirits. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. What does that statement there in verse 28 tell us? He says, don't, don't, it, it doesn't say don't fear those who try to kill. He says, don't fear, feel those, don't fear those who kill. Were there disciples of Jesus who lost their lives for the sake of the gospel? You bet there were. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground that would be dead apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Let's go back to Luke 21, verse 18. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. Why will it not be lost? Because they're all numbered. They're all numbered, cataloged, and Jesus knows exactly where they are. They might be on your dead body, but he knows where your hair, the hairs of your head are. Don't fear those who kill the body, but have no power over the soul. If you happen to be like that sparrow who falls to the ground, it didn't happen apart from your father's will. But your, not one hair of your head shall be lost, which tells us what? Your soul will not be lost. Your life will not be lost, though your body may cease to to, to function, your life will not be lost because what is the life that Jesus gives to his children? Eternal life. Yeah, his life. It can't be lost. Now, verse 20. So he's warning them up to verse 20 about all the things that are going to happen. Pay attention to what you see. Pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to all these things, for these are just signs of what's coming, but the end is not yet. And when you're hauled up before rulers and magistrates, don't fear. Don't try to figure out what you're going to say. Just open your mouth, and I'll give you the words to speak, and not one hair of your head will be lost, even if you are martyred for your faith in me. Because they hate you, because they hate me. And Jesus is saying, and he knows when he's telling them this, he's going to be murdered by the very people he's warning them about. And if they murder Jesus, they will murder you too. Verse 20, but not a hair will perish. That's right. Because death of our body is not the death we should fear. The death we should fear is the second death, the eternal separation from God. We have been eternally reunited with God, reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And nothing, Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Verse 20, 
But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Who's he talking to here? His disciples. Where are they when they're having this conversation? They're right there at Jerusalem. They've just come out of the temple. They're sitting there looking at the temple from a bird's eye view, asking him, Jesus, when are all these things going to happen that you're talking about? Not one stone left upon another. Look at that glorious temple. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. So right in our timeline, at 70 A.D., What's happening? What is Jerusalem surrounded by right now in 70 A.D.? It's surrounded by armies. And guess what? It's been surrounded by armies for a little while now. There have been armies all throughout Judea, Samaria, all throughout Israel. And all of those armies from all of those nations under the banner of the Roman Empire... These aren't just Italians. These are soldiers from every nation across the Roman Empire. And they're coming now to Jerusalem under the banner of Rome. What was fixed atop a Roman standard? Does anybody know? An eagle. Now, I'm not saying this is what it means, but when Jesus said, where you see the eagles gathered, there will be the corpse. Fits pretty good, though, because the eagles were gathered. Every legion had a standard, and that eagle was there. And actually, one of the things that happened that gave the Jews such confidence is that one of these legions lost its standard. And that legion was sent back with orders to get that standard back and to redeem themselves against the Jews who defeated them. So these Romans that were there, there were, there were some of them there. It was personal to them. They wanted vengeance because they had been humiliated by being defeated by these Jewish rebels. So Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then, then, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. In the midst of who? In the midst of Jerusalem. In the midst of the land there. Get out of there. Depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. So if you're in the country, you've already departed from the midst of her, don't go back. Now this is actually, this is actually what the writer of Hebrews is warning against. So in Hebrews, when he is writing to these Jews in Italy who want to go back to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals in the temple. This is how we know Hebrews. We know Hebrews was written prior to 70 AD because there was still a, a temple there that you could sacrifice animals in. 
And the writer of Hebrews says, if you go back to Jerusalem, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not trusting in the blood of Jesus, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin for you. If the blood of Jesus isn't good enough, then there is no animal you can offer in the temple that's going to take away your sin. And if you go back to Jerusalem to offer an animal at that temple, the only thing that awaits you is fiery indignation. Because why? Because the writer of Hebrews knew the prophecy of Jesus. They knew what was going to happen to Jerusalem, and they knew they had a time frame. What was the time frame? How would the writer of Hebrews and the writer of Scripture, how would they have known that that time was drawing near? How would they have known that? Did Jesus give a specific date? No. In fact, he said, not even the Son of God knows the day or the hour. But he, did he give us a time frame? Did he? What was it? This generation will not pass away until these things are fulfilled. The, the writer of Hebrews was not a dispensationalist. He was not thinking Jesus was talking about some yet future generation that didn't exist yet. The writers of Scripture understood what Jesus was saying. And the writer of Hebrews is warning those Jews who want to go back to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals in the temple. He says, don't you know? And, and the writer of Hebrews talks about it. That system, he describes it, it is passing away. And they didn't know the specific day or the hour, but they knew that Jesus said, this generation will not pass before these things are fulfilled. And so by the time the letter to the Hebrews is written and those Jews in Italy want to go back to Jerusalem, they knew this generation is getting close to passing. The time is getting near. And besides that, all of these things that have been taking place in the empire, all of these kingdoms rising against kingdoms and the Romans fighting the Parthians, the old Persians, and the conflicts within the empire, all of these things the Christians would have seen, they would have understood to be exactly what Jesus told them. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms rising against kingdoms, these things must take place, but the end is not yet. But what would that tell us? It's not yet, but it's getting close. Really, do you want to spend a month on a boat sailing back to Jerusalem so you can offer an animal sacrifice in the temple and you're not trusting in the Jesus you profess to believe in? You think that animal's going to do you any good? What if you get over there in Jerusalem and it's time for those things that Jesus prophesied to take place? You're going to get caught in the fiery indignation and you will perish and there will be no atonement for your sins because you just put your trust in an animal. That's how we should read the letter to the Hebrews. That's what the context is in Hebrews. These aren't believers who didn't work hard enough to keep their salvation. These are believers who profess faith in Jesus, but just to make sure, I want to go offer this animal in the temple and be a good Jew and keep the law because 
Though I'm trusting in Jesus, I think I also need to be justified by, by the deeds of the law. And the writer of Hebrews correctly points out, no, if you're trusting in your deeds and you're trusting in the law, then you're not trusting in Jesus. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, no animal can atone for your sin. You've trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus. Verse 22, so he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the midst of Jerusalem depart from her. And if you're out in the country, do not go back to Jerusalem. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, let me just, let me pull, turn over a, a, a few pages. I want to look at something. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Let me pull over here to... Luke chapter 4, let me find my place that I'm looking for here. Okay. Luke chapter 4. at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is baptized by John, then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting. He's tempted by the enemy. He's tempted by the devil three times. He uses the Word of God to rebuke the devil. He comes back. Verse 14, Luke 4, 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He's in his hometown now. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. What does that tell us? Jesus did not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. He worshiped regularly. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... 
This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah. Where did he actually read from? Let's go to the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. Here is where Jesus read from in the synagogue at Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, and he sat down, and he said, This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you notice where he stopped? He stopped in the middle of verse 2. The very next, ver- the very next uh, um, statement there, the very next section of verse 2, it begins, verse 2 begins to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, he did not talk about vengeance. He talked about the acceptable year of the Lord. He talked about coming to set the captives free. He sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But here, in verse 22... Look what Jesus says in talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads chapter 61, all of verse 1 and half of verse 2. And he sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was at the beginning of his earthly ministry, right after he comes out of the wilderness, right after his baptism. Now at the end of his earthly ministry, literally days before his arrest and crucifixion, what does Jesus say about all that he is telling them about? For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Yes, he fulfilled what he spoke that day in the synagogue. But now he's saying, now the rest of that is going to be fulfilled. The days of vengeance are coming that all things written may be fulfilled. This is why there was no question in the minds of the the early church and the disciples of Jesus that Jesus gave them a time frame. They knew that generation would not pass away before these things happen, which is why they fled Jerusalem and they ran to the hills and they got out of there because they believed the words of Jesus. When, when Jesus said this, that all things which are written may be fulfilled, they believed what he was telling them was true and they heeded his warning. 
Verse 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So long before the siege of Jerusalem, there was already great distress in the land. And those who heeded those warning signs got out of Dodge, if you will, and were not there. This is another reason why the Jews were so bitter toward their brethren who believed in Jesus because they did not stay to defend Jerusalem against the Romans. They did not stay there to fight the Romans to try to gain freedom and restore the kingdom of Israel. Why didn't the Christians do that? Because they weren't looking for the kingdom of Israel. They were looking for the kingdom of God. And they knew who that king was, and they knew that that king had already set in motion the very things that would bring about the overthrow of not just Rome, but all nations one day. Verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and, by, and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming upon the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What does he mean, the powers of the heavens will be shaken? What do you think that means? The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Do you think that's just hyperbolic language to tell us how, how severe and how awesome things taking place are? Do you think there really is some powers in the heavens that are going to be shaken as a result of the things Jesus is talking about here? I'm asking, what do you guys think? Do we think there are still powers in the heavens that can be shaken today? I do. I think there are still powers in the heavens that are waging warfare against God's people. Now, it's a futile warfare. They're defeated. We know that. But we have the writers of Scripture telling us. We have an enemy seeking whom he may devour. We have an enemy stand steadfast against him, resist him in the faith. If we don't have an enemy that's actively resisting us, why are we commanded to resist him? If we don't have an enemy to resist, why are we commanded to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil? Because there is a devil and he's still out there. And he's still waging war against God's people. But what is it that we should know about this war that's being waged? Should we fear it? We shouldn't fear it, but we should respect it. I mean, it is warfare, right? And there, there are casualties to war. But not one of your hairs upon your head will be lost. 
Jesus wrote in the book of Revelation when he, he wrote to, to, was it the church at Sardis? Uh, I can't remember if it was Sardis or which church was it? And he says, uh, some of you are going to be thrown into prison and some of you will be killed. Satan is upset and he's going to throw some of you into prison for 10 days and some of you will be killed. Persevere even to death. Was Jesus questioning his victory? Was Jesus questioning the victory of the church? Absolutely not. He was just telling us the reality of warfare. It was in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus gave very specific pictures uh, of what would happen to Jerusalem. In Luke 19.42... You're going to have to help me watch the clock here. In Luke 19.42, Jesus said, If you had known, talking about, over, speaking over the city of Jerusalem, if you had known, even you especially, you this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and level you in on every side and, um, and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you, Jerusalem. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus there is not talking about a temple just a temple. Jesus is talking about the city, and Josephus tells us in his historical record, he was an eyewitness. He said, after the siege of Jerusalem and after the Romans defeated the Jews, as you stood on the Mountain of Olives and you looked over what was once Jerusalem, he said, you could not even tell that there had been a city there, much less a temple. They literally leveled it to the ground. We know later, in the second Jewish revolt, we'll get to that in about um, 50 years. Well, 50 years on the timeline. In the second revolt, it was Hadrian who built the Roman city, Aelia Capitolina, named it after himself. And he did not want there to be the vestige of anything left there that would remind the Jews that they once had a city there. So when you look at Jerusalem, pictures of Jerusalem today, just understand you're not looking at anything that would have looked as though it did when Jesus walked the earth, other than the geology and the landscape. But the buildings and all of that, that that's gone. Then in verse 27, Luke 21, 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now, what is that? That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the vision of Daniel seeing one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. But that is also judgment language. 
This is the way God described himself when he would judge nations. This is Jesus talking about the judgment of God that would come upon Jerusalem one day. When? Before this generation passes. Now when these things begin to happen, he's telling his disciples, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And then he goes on. We're not going to keep reading, but he goes on and he gives uh, other metaphors of the fig tree. Of You can discern the seasons. You can discern all of this. You need to be able to discern the times so that you're not caught unprepared when these things come to pass. Let me just... Well, let me just finish this section here because it's worth reading. Verse 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and you know yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Not the kingdom of Israel. That's what the Jews thought. Boy, the kingdom of Israel is getting ready to be restored. No, the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Which generation? This generation. The generation Jesus is talking to, not some future generation. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Away, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and the day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, you're not going to be like those described in the book of Revelation who are hiding under the rocks saying, Jesus, flee from us. Don't look upon us. You'll be able to stand in the presence of God even in the judgment, with boldness and confidence because you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is what Jesus warned his disciples about in A.D. 33, let's say A.D. 33. So, 35 to 37 years before the end of the first Jewish revolt. So, by the time the revolt is taking place, these things that Jesus warned his disciples about, they've been happening for years. Now, the question is, were you paying attention and obviously, there were many, many Christians who were paying attention because 
There is not a record of Christians being caught in Jerusalem. They fled. There is a record of them not being there, and there is a record of the hatred the Jews had toward the Christian Jews who did not stay and fight. All right, any, any questions about any of that? So there's lots of detail uh, about the siege of Jerusalem. So it was in... It was in April of 70 A.D. at the time of Passover that Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, what would be significant about the siege beginning at Passover? What might be significant about that? Huh? Yeah. They all went to Jerusalem. So this war was happening... And there were Jews, not only Jews that were coming there for the pilgrim feast, but by this time, by the time of the siege, the war has already been waging. Um, and, and there were Jews outside fighting the Romans. And, and most of those had been defeated. And so they gathered their armies and they all came to Jerusalem. And they were held up in this fortress in this city fortress. And the Jews within the walls were not just fighting the Romans outside, but they were fighting among each other inside. So there were four parts that the city was divided into. There was what was called Old Town, which was the original Jebusite city that David conquered, and it became David's capital. And that part of the old town is the part of Jerusalem that overlooked the Kidron Valley. Set up way high in the valley, plunged hundreds of feet down there. That was, you're not going to take Jerusalem from that, that side. You're just not going to do it. And that was on the west and on the south side. And there were like 10,000 uh, Jewish warriors. There were another 5,000. Uh, remember, Herod was not a Jew. So Herod's people, uh, the Edomians, were also in Jerusalem. So they had men there. They had men in these four sections. And then outside were the Romans. And the Romans had not by this time been able to breach the walls and take the city. Every time they would make a breach in the wall, they'd get driven back and they'd suffer um, heavy casualties. And so this is when Titus decides that he's just going to Wait it out. Josephus, the Jewish historian, remember Josephus started out fighting against the Romans. He led a, a Jewish army that was defeated by Vespian. And he's remember, tells Vespian, you're going to become the emperor of Rome. And he tells him why. And Vespian is so intrigued, he keeps Josephus alive because he wants to see whether it's going to come true because it wasn't out of the realm of possibility for Vespian to become the ruler of Rome. Because why? Because Rome was already 
It, there were civil war. There were rumblings. Everybody knew that it was just a matter of time before Nero was either overthrown or assassinated. Well, Nero didn't give them the, the pleasure of that. He committed suicide so that no one would kill him and arrest him and do the things to him that he did to other people. And so now Josephus is on the outside with Vespian and the Romans, with Titus and the Romans, and he's pleading with the Jews from outside, telling them, surrender to the Romans. They will have mercy on you if you will surrender now, but if you persist, they're not going to have mercy on you. Now this is, if you read today, the Jews still don't like Josephus. The record of the Jewish war, the record of the siege of Jerusalem, uh, the Jews believe that Josephus was, a, was just a homeboy for the Romans and he didn't really tell the accurate story. I personally don't believe that's true. I just think there's animosity toward Josephus because they're just mad that he was outside the wall instead of inside the wall. And I think there's still some bitterness there today. And plus, his, his historical account doesn't line up with everything they believe to be the case. So who are you going to believe? An eyewitness or something, you know, yeah. I'm going to go with the eyewitness, I think. So these Roman soldiers were outside and they began to build exactly what Jesus said they would. They began to build embankments so that they could drive their siege engines, their catapults, their cannons. They could drive those up those embankments and begin to batter the walls around Jerusalem. So everything Jesus that we see recorded there in Luke's gospel literally came to pass. Not one word of Jesus fell to the ground unfulfilled. And so they build these great embankments with these great siege engines. And what the Jews did was they mined underneath the walls of Jerusalem. They mined underneath these embankments where the, the Romans had these big, heavy, wooden siege engines built there, ready to, to batter the walls. And they, they, the Jews lit a fire in this mine they had mined, and it broke through, and it burned up. It caught the siege engines on fire, and it burned up all the Roman siege engines. And the Romans knew at that point the Jews were not going to give up. But the bad thing for the Jews about that is not only did it destroy the Roman siege engines, it undermined and weakened the walls of Jerusalem. All that heat and all that mining weakened the walls, and it was, that's what ultimately allowed the Romans to be able to break through. But there were a series of three walls, and so... At that point in time, what Titus does, Titus orders, now think about this, there was a, uh, an eight-kilometer palisade. So remember, uh, you watch old cowboy and Indian movies and cowboy forts were these uh, wooden poles with sharpened ends, and that's what they made the, the forts out of. Well, around Jerusalem, there was a five-mile wooden palisade 
that was very tall, that did not allow anyone to come into Jerusalem, and it did not allow anyone to go out of Jerusalem. So this wooden fortress, fence, palisade is what they call it, was built. It was five miles in length. It completely surrounded Jerusalem, so no one could get in and no one could get out. And then the Romans cut down every tree, every bit of vegetation for 10 miles surrounding the city of Jerusalem. So the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, those olive trees that are there now are not the olive trees Jesus prayed under because the Romans cut every tree down for 10 miles. Why? Because the Jews were sneaking out of Jerusalem getting food. And so the Romans says, we'll fix that. We'll cut every tree down. We'll cut every greenery down. We'll build a five-mile palisade, and these Jews will have nothing to eat. And so it got so bad within the walls of Jerusalem, not just the hunger, but the fighting. They were killing each other. The Jews were killing each other inside. But they had run out of food. And so the Jews were breaking out of Jerusalem. So the, the, the really the sad thing, I, I, you can read it in, Jeru in Josephus' account. So these two guys that were in charge of Jerusalem who were fighting each other and their people were fighting each other, they were both committed to not allow anyone to leave Jerusalem. So if you were caught leaving or if they thought you were going to try to leave, they would torture and kill you and make an example out of you because they didn't want people defecting to the Romans. So they made it more scary to defect than to starve to death in Jerusalem. Well, some people, the people that were able to get out, at one point, the Romans, and so finally when the Romans said, this is your last chance, and the Jews said, no, thanks, but no thanks, the Romans said, okay, anyone coming out of that city, they die. They were crucifying over 500 people a day, people who were trying to escape Jerusalem because they were starving to death, and they, they, they couldn't live in there. And there was a war going on inside the city, and so people were fleeing, trying to get out, but the Romans were like, nope, you had your chance. And so they just started... They just had people lined up all outside Jerusalem. They just crucify him. And Josephus says the Roman soldiers would, would make sport of crucifying people in weird positions just for fun because it just became a thing of sport for them because they're just literally waiting for the Jews to die inside or surrender. But now it's like, why are you going to surrender? Because... And so eventually, after a while, it got so bad inside, the Romans, they attacked again, and eventually the Romans were able to breach the walls. And so what they did, they breached the first wall, and the Jews retreated behind the second wall. So now the Romans are inside the first wall, and they bring all their armies in. 
So now they don't have to build embankments anymore. They've, they've, got, they've got all their siege engines. They've got all their stuff in there, and they just start working on the walls. They just start going to work on the walls to undermine the walls. And when they, they tried breaking, they get a small break, and they tried to come through, and the Jews would wait for them and just massacre them. So the, they decided, no, we're just going to take a whole section of wall down, and we're going to send our whole army in. So after they breached the, the first wall, the Jews retreated behind the second wall. When they breached that second wall, the Jews retreated behind the wall of the temple. And the temple was like a fortress. And so they got behind, uh, they got in the temple complex. And it was, that is when they set fire to the temple. And so the Jews are all inside the temple complex. The Romans set fire to it. There's an argument as to whether it was set on purpose or by accident. Uh, Josephus says that Titus didn't want the temple to burn down, uh, but it did burn down. It burned down. It is estimated that 600,000 to a million people died inside Jerusalem. That many Jews Possibly a million Jews died within the walls of Jerusalem. And so at the end of that siege, there were 98,000 prisoners, people taken prisoner. So um, men were taken to be gladiators or to be slaves. Women and children were sold as slaves the people that they couldn't use or make um, money off of, they just did away with them. Um, and so Jerusalem was defeated. So in 70 AD, in that year, uh, it is said by the Jews that Jerusalem fell the very same day that it fell at, at the hands of the Babylonians uh, there's some discrepancy there depending on which calendar because there were m different calendars in use at that time. But, but legend says, and you'll read this among some Jewish literature, that, that Jerusalem fell to the Romans on the same day that Jerusalem uh, fell to the Babylonians. And the first temple was destroyed uh, on the same day as the second temple was destroyed by the enemies of Israel. Whether that's true or not, it fell, the city was taken, and Josephus says that after, after it was all said and done, there was not one stone left upon another, and you could not even tell that there had been a city there. It was just laid bare. Now, why was it laid bare? Well, because there was so much gold in the temple. Not just gold walls and gold furnishing, furnishings, but remember the temple was a bank. So people put their gold, they didn't have paper currency like we do, they had coinage, they had gold, silver, valuable currency, that temple was a bank. And when that temple burned, all that gold melted. And all that melted gold and all that melted silver, where did it run? It ran between all the rocks. And so the Roman soldiers, one of the, one of the major things, the, the reason there was no stone left upon another is because they literally pried those stones apart and turned them over 
to get all the gold that had melted and run under the ground, under those rocks. And so when that was all said and done, they, they, the Roman emperor was not going to leave any gold in that city. They took it all. And in the process of getting all that gold, they overturned every stone and that city was not recognizable any longer. And that was not the end of the Jewish war, but for all practical purposes, that was the end of the Jewish war. So the Jewish war actually didn't officially end until around 73. Um, it was in 73... A.D. that um, that Masada, the Jews at Masada were were defeated. So there were rebel holdouts, but it's kind of like the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, and when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he ascended to the Father, in Colossians, Paul writes that he made an open shame, open humiliation. He triumphed over. That's a that's a term that the Romans, anyone in that day would have understood because what did Rome do when the Jewish war was over? There's an arch in Rome, the, arc, the Arch of Titus. And it was an arch built to commemorate the end of the Jewish war. And so when Titus was celebrated for leading Rome to victory over the Jews, they had a grand parade. And so the two Jewish leaders who's created so much havoc and created so much, so many problems, those Jewish leaders were not killed that day. They were captured. Actually, they tried to negotiate with Titus. And what they were going to try to do is pay him off because there was a lot of money there. And Titus wouldn't hear of it. And those two guys were taken back to Rome and they were paraded at the front of the parade. And at the end of the parade, one of them was flailed and executed and the other one was put in prison for the rest of his life. He spent the rest of his life in a Roman prison. I'm not exactly sure why they didn't kill both of them, but the one guy they killed. But they saved him for the parade. Why? Because these were the leaders. And so they paraded them through Rome and they wanted the Roman people to see the leaders that were defeated. But the Jewish war, there were still rebels fighting. So it's kind of like us. Why is the devil still out there roaming around opposing us if he's been defeated? Well, he's been defeated. He cannot win this war. In fact, God is using him for his own glory, for his own ends and his own purposes. Now, you and I don't know what those ends and purposes are, but the Bible says God does. And the Bible says God has already made an open humiliation of his enemies. He's already triumphed over them. The parade's already taken place. They've been humiliated. So we don't have to wonder whether our enemies are going to rise up and overthrow God again and overthrow the church again. They're not. That's why it doesn't matter what it looks like in our culture currently. The kingdom of God is here and ain't going anywhere. It's only going to grow and grow and grow and grow. So think about it. 
the Messiah who Israel thought was powerless over Rome because he allowed Rome to crucify him. What did that Messiah do with Rome? He overthrew it. Now, we're not there in our timeline. And so just about this time, Rome is now persecuting Christians. And from Nero's reign, from around 64 A.D. all the way to 300 A.D., we're going to have wave after wave after wave of Roman persecution of the church. But something significant happens in 315 A.D. 315 A.D. The Roman emperor Constantine defeats his rival... And God, this is what Constantine says, God showed me a sign. It's called the Cairo. And God said to Constantine, go in this sign and conquer. And Constantine went from being a pagan to a professing Christian. Now, how devout was he? We don't know, but he made Christian. He, he issued, who knows what he issued in 315 A.D., the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan made it illegal to persecute Christians. The Edict of Milan made Christianity not only legal, but it's now illegal to persecute Christians. And Constantine commanded that the entire empire become Christian. You know, a lot of people give Constantine flack and they say that was horrible. But think about it. I'm not saying Constantine was, was uh, the best guy. I'm not saying he wasn't corrupt. I'm not saying he was the model Christian. I don't know. But I do know he professed faith in Christ. I do know he made persecution of the church illegal. I do know he made Christianity the religion of the kingdom and began to tear down the paganism of the Roman Empire. And had Constantine not done that, I wonder what our world might be like today. Just food for thought.